Good morning. It is a good day to be together. Why don't we open up in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we have a new story, that we have a new song, that you have written over us a narrative of hope and redemption and blessing, and that we can live into that. And so, Lord, I pray that even today as we look at your scriptures, reflect on the meaning of baptism, that you would deepen that story into our lives and help us to have fresh ways of thinking about uh, your promises to us and what baptism means for those promises. God, we thank you uh, for your son who makes all this possible. In his name we pray, amen. Well, uh, we have been working this month through a, our fall or our August uh, sermon series called A Life of Worship. And uh, earlier in the summer, as Pastor Todd and I were discussing what subjects we should include in the series. I, I can't remember which one of us it was, but we, we, we reflected on the thought that we should include a set of sermons on baptism and communion. And that's something that I've wanted to do uh, for quite a while. And so I said, put me in, coach, put me in. And uh, he put me in. And so today and then next week, uh, we're going to be looking at how the celebration of the sacraments, or ordinances, as they're sometimes uh, referred to, of baptism and communion are central to a life of worship. Not just central to our life as a congregation worshiping, although certainly true there, but to our ongoing life that we lead in worship to God. Indeed, baptism and communion contain within themselves in an embodied form, the very heart of the gospel message. So to understand baptism, to understand communion, is to understand the meaning of Christianity, which means that these sermons are relevant then for both believers as well as those who are not yet believers. As I've said, this morning's focus is going to be on baptism. If you're a confessing Christian this morning and you haven't been baptized, or perhaps, if pressed, couldn't really explain or articulate the point of baptism, then this message is especially for you. And if you're someone uh, this morning who is still outside the community of faith, who's not yet a Christian, but who is considering whether or not to become a Christian, and I speak uh, with many of you in that uh, place in life, then this message, I pray, will give you further and a deeper picture of what it means to become a Christian. You're thinking about converting, looking at baptism as a sign shows you what it means to convert. One brief caveat before we dig into our text this morning, this sermon is specifically aimed at the sort of Christian currents that Calvary swims in. Uh, the evangelical, independent, free church tradition. Some of that will mean something to some of you. Some of it will not mean anything to any of you, and that's fine. But part of my aim this morning is to rectify some of the misconceptions that that I've encountered in traditions much like Calvary. If you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Anglican or didn't grow up going to church at all, then some of these misconceptions might not be your misconceptions. But I hope that all of us, regardless of where we're coming from, will, by God's grace, gain more clarity about what it means in the life of the believer and what baptism means in the life of the believer and how it proclaims the promises 
of God. So our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. Let me encourage you to lay hold of a copy of the scriptures. You can find one there in the pew rack in front of you. If you didn't bring one with you, or perhaps it's on your phone. But Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. As you find that text, let's all stand together. I will read it. You follow along. Romans 6, 1 through 14, the words of the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. Let me be seated. So whenever we uh, do baptisms here at Calvary and someone comes forward, wants to be baptized, uh, part of the process of that is that the, the baptismal candidate would come and sit down with one of the pastors and talk about the meaning of baptism, the purpose of baptism, uh, how it functions uh, in the life of a Christian, and then prepare uh, the candidate for the actual baptism. So whenever I have the privilege of doing a baptism interview, I'm always sure to ask and then answer at least three questions. Three questions are these. What is baptism? Like, what, what is it actually doing? Why does it exist? What is it? What does it signify? And what does baptism promise? What is baptism? What does baptism signify? And what does baptism promise? Our text this morning answers all three of these questions. Now, there are other questions that we might have about baptism, and those are valid questions, but I'm, I'm going to limit uh, I'm going to limit our time this morning to these three particular questions because I believe they get to the heart of the message that baptism proclaims. These three questions then will organize the sermon and uh, give us a framework for thinking about this particular text. So the first question, baptism, what is it? In the early church, in the early uh, days of the church, such as we might find in the book of Acts uh, in the New Testament, for instance. Baptism functioned as an initiation rite, a ceremony by which one formally entered into the life of the church. You might remember Paul's story, just one example, who was a persecutor of Christ in the church, 
had this encounter with Jesus and his eyes were both opened and closed at the same time, if you know the story. And he came to recognize who Christ was and he repented. And God sent someone from the church to come baptize Paul and to, and to welcome him in to the Christian community. And baptism was the thing that was done to Paul that signified that he was no longer a persecutor of the church, but now had been received into the life of the church. And we could look all throughout the book of Acts and see all the occasions where the gospel is preached, salvation is received, and then what follows is baptism. Baptism is the initiation rite, the ceremony by which one formally was welcomed into the life of the church. Or we could say it like this, baptism was the response of faith that the new convert had that celebrated the new convert's relationship with God and that inaugurated the new convert's relationship with the church. Baptism was the initiation rite that celebrated the new convert's relationship with God and inaugurated the new convert's relationship with the church. Whenever I'm talking about baptism with a baptismal candidate, I find it helpful to use the analogy of marriage to explain a little more clearly about how baptism functions. The relationship between Jesus and the church is often described in Scripture as like the relationship between a bride and a bridegroom. We see this throughout Jesus' parables. He uses the example and the metaphor of marriage frequently in his parables to describe his relationship with the church. This is one of the favorite metaphors of the Apostle Paul as well. He uses it frequently uh, throughout his writings to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. So I think it's appropriate to take this metaphor of marriage. The New Testament encourages us by which the New Testament encourages us to think about Christ's relationship with the church and to think about baptism through that lens. So in a spousal relationship, the man and the woman fall in love. He asks her to marry him. She says yes. And this results in a, an engagement, a very real yet private commitment. The two of them have established a relationship with each other that they didn't have previously but yet this is a, a private commitment that exists between the two of them. Then follows a wedding which formally celebrates and inaugurates the beginning of their life together. So baptism is to conversion what a wedding is to engagement. Baptism functions in the life of the church as a covenant-making ceremony ordained by Jesus that formally inaugurates and celebrates the beginning of the Christian life. Baptism takes the private commitment of faith, the engagement, if you will, to stick with that metaphor, and moves it into the formal covenant ceremony whereby we are recognized by the church and the world as belonging to God and the community of faith. Now, this way of thinking about baptism leads to a question that I am occasionally asked. The question is this, can you be a Christian without being baptized? Now, if you grew up in the sort of tradition that Calvary uh, is in, you want me to very quickly assure everybody that you can be a Christian without being baptized. But rather than answering the question, I'm going to, in good Jesus fashion, ask another question. Jesus often would be asked questions and he would just ask questions in return. 
perhaps frustratingly and frustrating for you this morning as well. But in any case, let me ask another question before we get around to answering that question. Can you be baptized without being a Christian? Can you be married without a vow-making covenant ceremony? Let's look back at our passage. Paul's working assumption in this passage is that all Christians, all the readers to whom he's writing, he's writing to the church in Rome, that all Christians have been baptized. That's his assumption. At the end of chapter 5, he's been making an argument that where sin increased, grace increased all the more to cover over sin. Where sin increases, grace abounds. But this might lead someone to the question that Paul then asks at the beginning of chapter 6. Well, then what should we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And Paul says, not so. But interestingly, he doesn't repudiate the logic that where sin increases, grace increases. That's true. But Paul doesn't want us to just go on sinning so we can rack up more grace. He says, no, that's not how it works. And and notably, he goes to baptism to repudiate that false logic. He goes to the believer's baptism in order to show that a Christian is the kind of person who doesn't abuse grace, but rather makes good on grace to lead a God-pleasing life. He appeals to baptism and the way that it signifies the Christian's death to sin and the new life in God. So note this, new converts were baptized as such a matter of course that Paul can appeal to baptism as a given reality for all of his readers. So when he asks, should we go on sinning that grace may abound, and he answers by no means, he's basically going on to say, remember what your baptism teaches you. Your baptism teaches you that you cannot go on living in sin because you've died to sin in the death of Christ. When Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, he doesn't mean that only some Christians, the baptized ones, have been baptized into Christ's death, as though there's two kinds of Christians, those who have been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection and those who aren't incorporated into Christ's death and resurrection. There's only one kind of a Christian in Paul's mind, and it's those who have been baptized in Christ and therefore baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. He takes it for granted that all Christians have been baptized into Christ and that everything he says then in the remainder of chapter 6 flows from this assumption. Neither Paul nor his readers had a category for someone who had been accepted as a full member of the believing community, but who had not been baptized. It just didn't work like that in Paul's day, and it's not supposed to work like that in our day either. Paul assumes that those who call themselves Christians and who participate in the Christian community have been baptized in the same way that we assume that those who say they are married and who live together as husband and wife have inaugurated their marriage through a formal vow-making ceremony. It's such an assumption that if I was leading a wedding or a marriage seminar and I wanted to uh, make a point about how our vows anchor our relationship, I would appeal to marriage and the wedding as something that I assumed everyone at a marriage seminar had undergone. 
In the same way that Paul, when he is making an appeal to the Christians in Rome about how they are to live their lives, he takes them back to a ceremony that he assumes all of them have undergone. It is because baptism functions as an inaugural covenant-making ceremony that the majority of Christian churches throughout the history of the church on into the present day do not distribute communion to those who have not been baptized. Now, when you think about it, there's a certain logic to this that makes a great deal of sense when you consider the meaning of baptism set next to the meaning of communion. Baptism is a one-time initiation rite that marks the beginning of faith. Communion, as we'll see more next week, is a repeated sacrament that celebrates our ongoing life and participation in Christ. So it is, I believe, a misordering of the sacraments to skip past baptism, which marks the beginning of our relationship with Christ, and to partake of communion, which marks the ongoing continuation of our relationship with Christ. We're getting the communal heart before the baptismal horse, as it were. Now, Calvary does not have a formal position on this as a church, and so I'm not here trying to bind anyone's conscience with the formal teaching position of the church. When Calvary was uh, first organized over 100 years ago, it pulled together Christians from all sorts of denominational contexts, and there was uh, it seems to me, as I look back on the history, as we've kind of looked back on the history, that there was a variety of opinions about baptism and communion. And so the church largely just punted on the issue. So we don't have a formal position on this as a church. But I can say that this ordering of the sacraments is the ordering that Pastor Todd and I have adopted with respect to our families, as have most of the other pastors here at Calvary. So my children do not take communion, did not take communion until they were baptized. And I would counsel the same for any person, whether that's an adult or a child. So if you were to come and ask me my, uh, and I get asked this frequently, well, when should I allow my child to take communion? My answer is, my recommendation is that when they are ready to be baptized, they are then ready to receive communion. So we come back to our question, can you be a Christian without being baptized? Well, in one sense, yes, salvation occurs at the moment of faith, the moment when our eyes are opened and we surrender ourselves to Christ and receive the free gift of forgiveness and the new life in Christ. As Paul states elsewhere, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. So salvation comes to us by faith. But that private moment of faith between us and Christ, while it is indeed a saving moment, is not a substitute for baptism. Just as there is more to marriage than engagement, there is more to becoming a Christian than one's private moment of salvation. Baptism, while it is not a means of salvation, is nonetheless the divinely appointed means by which we celebrate that salvation and by which we formally inaugurate our new life with Christ and are received by the church as full participants of the believing community. So what is baptism? Baptism is the initiation rite that celebrates the believer's new life with Christ and, a form, and formally inaugurates his or her entry into the church. That's what baptism is. Now, I know that this is a new perspective for some of you, and you're going to have to sit and prayerfully re reflect on all of this, and I think that's completely fine. 
and I encourage you uh, to do that. If you have questions, you want to come talk to me, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. Some of you perhaps are upset and you're already sending an angry email on your phone, and that's fine too. Uh, you can email me at Pastor Jonathan Cummings at Calvary Memorial, <laughs> and I will follow up with you uh, soon. <clears throat> okay, so baptism, that's what, uh, that's, what it, uh, that's what it is. But now, this becomes more clear even as we begin to think about what baptism signifies. So that's our second question. What is baptism? What does it signify? Have you ever wondered why baptism? Why did Jesus choose baptism as the sign of the covenant? He could have chosen, like, everyone who becomes a Christian gets the special earring, right? Or everyone who becomes a Christian gets a special tattoo, I remember back in uh, the days when Mitt Romney was running for president, I saw it was a rather distressing picture, but it was a, a supporter of Mitt Romney who had got a tattoo of Mitt Romney's face on the side of his face. I, that's what I thought. I thought this is, that is, don't do that. I mean, just don't do that. And then, of course, Mitt didn't win, so I don't, that's, but Jesus, he, he didn't, pick a tattoo, he didn't pick an earring, like why did he pick, why did he give us baptism as the sign of the covenant, as the initiation rite? Well, let's stay with the wedding metaphor. You've been to a wedding, no doubt you've seen the lighting of the unity candle, where you have the two candles, they're both burning, that are brought together to light a single candle, and what is being symbolized in that action is the bringing together of the two into one. Or just recently, I was at a wedding where there was a sand ceremony. It functioned much the, much the same way, with two different colors of sand poured into a common container where the two uh, colors are mixed together, signifying that the two are becoming one. And in those uh, ceremonial observances, the acts that are taking place are signifying the commitments that are being made. Baptism functions in the same way as an initiation rite. It signifies in an embodied way the conversion of the one being baptized. Baptism is a visual embodied enactment of the gospel. It communicates to the new convert in a tangible way the truth of what has happened to them. The message of the gospel is that we were dead in sins, cut off from life, under God's judgment, and headed for death. Jesus came and took upon himself our ruined humanity. He killed it on the cross. He buried it in the grave, and then he raised it to new life in his resurrection. And when we surrender our lives to God in faith, we become united to Christ through the Holy Spirit and thus are united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. So Paul's whole point in this passage is that our baptism signifies that we have died to our old life of sin and death and have been raised to new life in God. That's the whole logic of why he introduces baptism as he begins to talk about the kind of life that a Christian should be living. How should we be living? Think back to your baptism. Your baptism tells you how you should be living. Your baptism tells you your new identity. Baptism says to the new convert, that you have a new identity, that you are no longer to think of yourself as you were before Christ, but are to think of yourself as one who has died to an old way of life, of sin and death, and have been raised with Christ to a new way of living. 
Baptism is a way for the church to proclaim to the new convert exactly what has happened to them. And note the deep symbolism in the sign of baptism. It extends beyond just a statement about our death and our resurrection with Christ. Notably, it also contains within itself a statement about our own inability to save ourselves. We do not baptize ourselves. Baptism is a passive ordinance. It is done to us. We present ourselves to be baptized in a passive way, just as we present ourselves to God for salvation. We go into the water, symbolizing our death. And we trust that the one, we trust that the person baptizing us will pull us up back out of the grave that the water symbolizes. That's how salvation works. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead. We have no power inherent within ourselves to overcome sin and its curse. But we must entrust ourselves into the care of God, that we give ourselves into his power, into his hands, and he will raise us up. And baptism is a beautiful picture of that reality. Most fundamentally, then, baptism is a sign of conversion, not a sign of discipleship. And this is where I think many of us can go wrong. For many of us, we have often thought of baptism as something that we do later in our Christian life when we are really ready to be serious about our faith. Many people I talk to who come forward from baptism have that sort of perspective on it. We push it off till later in life, in our Christian life. It becomes for us then a sacrament of serious discipleship rather than a sacrament of conversion. And of course, many of us have been implicitly led into this kind of thinking because we grew up in a tradition that does not typically require baptism for communion. We move right into living publicly as a Christian without going through the initiation rite. The reason that my children, all three of the four of them that are old enough to, to know, began to think seriously about baptism was because we did not allow them to take communion. So every communion service, it was a reminder to them that they had not yet been formally brought into the community of faith. And the desire to be baptized was a desire that was sparked by the desire to take communion. Now, some might say that the desire to take communion is not the right motivation for baptism, but I would say to you that the desire to take communion is precisely the right reason to be baptized. It is through baptism that we enter into the communal sacramental life of the church, just as it is through marriage that we enter into the lived, shared life of living together as husband and wife. The desire to live in the fullness of the sacramental communal life of the church, if baptism is required for that, then certainly baptism should be motivated by the desire to take communion. But when we push baptism off into the future and make it a sign of discipleship rather than a sign of conversion, we obscure the meaning of baptism, and it becomes difficult to understand the role that it has in our life, or even really why we should do it at all except that Jesus commands it. Many times when I ask someone why they want to be baptized, they say, well, Jesus commands it. And that's certainly true, and that certainly should be a motive for us as to why we want to be baptized. But if I were to ask, well, why did Jesus command it, it would not be particularly clear why Jesus commands it. But Jesus commands it because it is a sign of the covenant. It is a sign of conversion. 
What's more, when we unlink baptism from conversion and we push it down the road towards discipleship, we are forced to come up with our own response of faith. You might think back to that moment when you first came to the place of faith, when you heard the gospel proclaimed and your eyes were opened and you received the good news of the gospel in Christ. Remember that moment, maybe you, you wanted to do something, you wanted to have some sort of response of faith, not as a meritorious work, but as a way of embodying and declaring what had now become true of you and what you believed. And so many of us, we prayed the sinner's prayer or we walked the aisle or we threw a stick on the fire or we raised our hand with every head bowed and every eye closed. I see that hand. I see that hand. Perhaps you remember that. And ironically, the one sign that our Lord gave us as the proper response of faith, the one sign that actually embodies and communicates the reality of what has just happened to us is the one sign that many of us have been explicitly taught not to think of. Some of us have become so worried that baptism will wrongly be thought of as a means of salvation that we've forgotten that it is the Christ-ordained covenant sign of salvation. And God forgive us for thinking that we could come up with a better sign of the covenant. Throwing a stick on the fire is great, but it's no substitute for baptism. We cannot come up with a better response of faith, a better embodied enactment of our new belief than the one that Jesus gave us. So what is baptism? Baptism is the initiation rite that celebrates the new believer's life with Christ and formally inaugurates his or her entry into the church. And what does baptism signify? It signifies our conversion, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And finally, what does baptism promise? Baptism is God's promise to us that everything he has done for Jesus, he will do for us. Something that I tell everyone that I'm preparing for baptism. If you remember only one thing, remember this. That baptism, baptism is God's promise to us that he will do for us everything that he has done for Jesus. This is the logic of everything that Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6. He's appealing back to the believer's baptism and he's saying that what is true of Jesus is now true of you because you have been baptized into Christ and you have become united with him in his death and resurrection. We can often think of baptism sometimes as a statement that we make to the church about our commitment to God. And in one sense, it is that. But in a deeper sense, baptism is first a statement that God makes to us. It is his promise that everything he has done for his son, he will do for us. Just as he raised Jesus from the dead, Paul tells us, so too he will raise us from the dead. Baptism is God's promise that just as Jesus died to sin and death, leaving the diseased humanity in the ground, so too we and all those who have been baptized into Christ will also be united with Christ in his resurrection, leaving behind the old way of living. At its core, baptism is God's statement that he loves us and that he will continue to love us with the same love that he loves the Son. So return back to our marriage metaphor again. Baptism is an exchange of vows of sort. Our vows to God and God's vows even more fundamentally back to us. When I'm preparing people for baptism, I encourage them to always think back that later in life, 
as life moves on, that I encourage them to always think back and remember their baptism and the promises of God that it contains. That should they lose their way or have a hard time remembering what it means to belong to God, that they should think back to their baptism and remember what happened to them and how that enacted the gospel in their lives and that they have a new identity now, that they have died to the old way of life, raised to the new way of life, and that that baptism is a promise, not just that they have made to God, but it's also a promise that God has made to them, that he will treat them as he has treated his son. That's exactly what Paul is doing in this passage. He is pointing his readers back to their baptism as a way of reminding them who they are in Christ and what God has promised them. He is helping them reclaim their identity as the people of God by reminding them of their baptism. I recall hearing a number of years ago about Robertson McQuilkin. He's passed now, but he was formerly uh, the president of Columbia Bible College. And He was still uh, many years left in his ministry, kind of at the apex of his career, and his wife uh, came uh, down with Alzheimer's. And as her condition worsened, it became more and more difficult for him to maintain his uh, profession as the president of the school while also caring for his wife. His wife, when uh, he was around, when Robertson was around, would be calm and could be happy. But when he was away from her, she became very scared and agitated and angry. And so he increasingly had to spend more and more time with her and and couldn't continue on uh, in the job. And some of his friends counseled him to put his wife in a home, to be cared for in a home, because he had so much still to offer uh, with his profession. But he didn't do it. And this was his response publicly when he resigned uh, from Columbia College. He said, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? And I am a man of my word. The vow that Robertson had made to his wife on the day of their wedding And the years past were an anchor that held firm Robertson's commitment to his wife and the difficulty, the present, and their future. And God, too, is a God of his word. For richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, in sin or in death, God will make good on his vow to us. And that is the great promise of baptism, that God will see us through to the end, that because we belong to Christ, everything that God will do for Christ, has done for Christ, and will do for Christ, yet with Christ's return, God will do for us. So baptism is the initiation rite that celebrates the believer's new life with Christ and formally inaugurates his or her entry into the church. Baptism signifies our conversion, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, And baptism is God's promise to us that he will do for us everything that he has done for Christ. So have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? If so, let me encourage you to think always of your baptism and the promise that it contains. God loves you. Let your baptism be an anchor for your faith in times of doubt and in times of difficulty and an assurance of hope for things to come. 
God's promises are true, and your baptism proclaims the promises that God has made over your life. Cling to those promises contained in the great sign of baptism. But perhaps you're a believer here this morning and you've never been baptized. Well, now is your time. What are you waiting for? Baptism is the great sign of our conversion, the great statement that God makes over us that we belong to Jesus and that he belongs to us. Perhaps you've been thinking about baptism as a sign of discipleship and you're always thinking, am I really a good disciple? I'll wait till next year when I'm a better disciple. I'll wait till next year when I'm a better disciple. Baptism is not a sign of discipleship. Baptism is a sign of your conversion. Are you converted? then you should be baptized. Baptism is God's sure promise that he loves us, with which he loves his son, and that everything he has done for Jesus, he will do for us. Why not take that sign upon yourself? Why not exchange vows, as it were, with your Lord and Savior, that you belong to him and that he belongs to you? Let him mark you with the sign of the covenant. Our next baptismal service is September 24th, and uh, perhaps that's your morning to be baptized. But it strikes me, as Todd and I were reflecting on this, it strikes us that there are far more than need to be baptized in this congregation than we would be able to fit into a morning service on September 24th. So we're prepared to do a special baptismal service that would welcome all who want to be baptized and need to be baptized. So if you need to be baptized, then you come forward for baptism. And you can see how to do that in the bulletin. There's a little uh, blurb there that gives you some instructions about how to put your name forward for baptism. Come meet with one of us on the pastoral staff. Be welcomed in a formal way through the covenant sign into the community of faith. And if there's too many that we can't fit you all in on September 24th, then we'll come up with a whole service to gather us all together and to celebrate this great covenant sign. But perhaps you're not a believer this morning. I invite you too to consider the waters of baptism and what they signify. They signify that you are in need of God's grace that you cannot save yourself and that Christ is your only hope for this life and the life to come. Some of you have been sitting on the margins for long enough. Now perhaps is your time too. Perhaps you've hesitated to receive Christ because you know that giving your life to Christ means dying to a way of life that you are not yet ready to let go of. And I can tell you that, yes, receiving Christ does mean dying to your old way of life. That is the message proclaimed in baptism, that we let go of what was to embrace what is in Christ. Let go of your old way of life. There is no life that you could cling to apart from Christ that will transcend the grave except the life that is found in Christ. There is no hope to be found in this world or the next except the hope that is found in Jesus. And baptism is a great sign of this reality. Perhaps you hesitate because you don't want to give up control, because you don't want to entrust yourself to another. And I would encourage you to consider that baptism does ask you to let go of control, to let yourself be placed under the water 
and to trust another to bring you back up as a picture of what it means to surrender your life to God, to cease in your own striving to control your life and your circumstances, but rather to give yourself into the care of one who can care for you better than you could ever care for yourself. Perhaps you hesitate to receive Christ because you do not feel worthy to be identified with Christ. You feel that your shame runs too deep, that your hands are too stained. To which I would say, of course you do. That's the whole point of baptism. That's what baptism signifies, that Christ's death to sin and death becomes our own death to sin and death. That Christ's resurrection And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be washed clean and raised to new life. So don't let your sin stand between you and God, your perceived shame that you think is bigger than God's grace. As Paul was already telling the Romans, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Come receive forgiveness and new life. Stop living in your sin and your shame. God offers you a better way close out our service this morning singing in Christ alone. It's a song that many of us know well. And it speaks of Jesus's life, his coming and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And as we sing it, let me encourage you to sing it with a view to the recognition that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection becomes for us our life, death, and resurrection as well. That Jesus' life, death, and resurrection isn't some reality that happened 2,000 years ago, of which we look back as some historical fact that we believe in, but rather Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection becomes a personal reality for us when we receive him in faith so that as we consider this morning the meaning and beauty of baptism, Let baptism remind you that you belong to Christ and that everything that happens to Christ and God's promises in Christ's life become his promises in our life as well. Father, thank you for the great sign of baptism. Thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and death, but that you have sent your son to enter into our sin-pocked humanity and that he laid hold of it And in the great struggle that he defeated it on the cross, he took it to the grave, put an end to it, and that he raised it brand new through the power of the resurrection. God, we thank you that baptism is the great sign, the great sacrament that preaches this to us and reminds us of the power of the gospel. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning that have been baptized. May they remember their baptism as the great promise you've made to them. May they cling to it Uh, as a word of hope for those that haven't been baptized this morning but are believers, I pray that you would awaken within them a conviction to move forward into receiving this great covenant sign. May they not see it as a burden or some work to be performed that pleases you, but may they see it, Lord, as a great gift that you give that marks them with the covenant promises. So God, stir in the hearts of those that need it, I do pray. And for, Lord, those who are outside the community of faith and who are considering what it means to become a Christian, may they see in baptism, Lord, the great challenge of faith to surrender,
but then the great hope of faith to receive the new life of Christ. God, open their eyes by your spirit to recognize that hope is found only in Jesus and in the power of his resurrection. We pray this in his name. Amen.